Capital Market Insights from ICMA. Hello, my name is Richard Camotto. Over many years, I've been providing technical assistance and training on repo markets on behalf of organizations such as the IMF, the World Bank, and the Asian Development Bank, as well as for the ICMA and its development partner, Frontclear. I worked in this role in over 30 countries in Africa, Asia, Eastern Europe, and Latin America. In this podcast, I'm going to draw on that experience to explain why it's proved so hard to establish successful new repo markets. And by the way, by repo markets, I mean real markets, that is trading among and between banks and other private institutions, not repos with central banks conducting monetary policy operations. Let's start by looking at the key features of a fairly typical repo market development plan. First, such plans often include the objective of driving a transition from repos, which are actually not repos at all, but merely loans secured by pledge collateral, to true repo, in which collateral is given by the transfer of legal title. Title transfer is essential to avoid the many threats that statutory insolvency regimes pose to a lender's control over pledge collateral in a default by an insolvent counterparty. Another objective of most plans is to allow closeout netting to be enforced in the event of a default. Closeout netting is the contractual right to terminate transactions with the defaulting counterparty and to then value and net the offsetting obligations of these transactions so as to crystallize them into a smaller net exposure. This process is essential for repos and also for securities lending and derivatives because of the scale and volatility of the exposures that these instruments can create. The introduction of closeout netting usually requires a change in bankruptcy law, but amending such core legislation is always politically challenging, particularly in civil code jurisdictions where bankruptcy laws tend to be deeply embedded within the code. And allowing closeout netting can be especially sensitive given that it effectively awards super priority in a bankruptcy to the claims of financial market creditors over others. As a result, many development plans look to circumvent the need to ask for legislative reform by having the regulator require banks document their repos with a version of the ICMA's Global Master Repurchase Agreement, or GMRA. The GMRA provides, among other things, for the transfer of title to collateral and for closeout netting upon default. The hope is that the approbation of the regulator and its special role in banking supervision will deter legal challenges to closeout netting in an insolvency and that ring fencing these rights within a master repurchase agreement between banks will avoid disturbing the general bankruptcy regime. You may have noted that I referred to the use of a version of the GMRA. This is because the governing law of the GMRA is often changed from English to local law. Among other reasons, this is because many emerging market jurisdictions, despite claiming otherwise, in reality do not allow much freedom of contract and will not enforce contracts under foreign law or subject to the jurisdiction of a foreign court, at least not for purely domestic transactions. 
Second, the immediate objective of most of the repo market projects being promoted by international agencies is to support the implementation of an interest rate driven monetary policy framework. This, of course, requires an interbank interest rate to use as the target and gauge of monetary policy. And that in turn requires a working interbank market to generate the interest rate. A repo market is the preferred choice of interbank money market because repos are collateralized and trade at a nearly risk-free interest rate, which is the post-LIBOR benchmark preferred by global regulators. In addition, the collateralized nature of repo is seen as a way of mitigating the credit risk, which leads to the segmentation of interbank money markets between large and small banks and which obstructs money market trading. By the way, one important consequence of the monetary policy objective of most repo market plans is that these plans are then typically the preserve of the central bank. Finally, there can be a lot of vague talk in plans about pre-settlement infrastructure, electronic trading systems, tri-party repo services, and even central counterparties or CCPs. I regret to say that repo market plans of the type I've just outlined are doomed to fail. And indeed, their success rate to date has been very modest. So what's been going wrong? Let me illustrate the most serious problems by posing questions about some of the features I've just described as being typical of repo market plans. The first question is, is there already a functioning interbank money market? In many emerging markets, the interbank money market is so deeply segmented that it is not a real market at all. That is in the sense of bringing together competing buyers and sellers. Market segmentation is not necessarily due to the fact that large banks don't understand or don't want to be bothered analyzing the credit of small banks. If that was the case, collateral might be able to help. Unfortunately, the problem is usually that the interbank money market is simply not competitive. Liquidity is all too often concentrated in a small oligopoly of banks, often state-owned or formerly state-owned. Other banks are relegated to the role of customer. Pricing and trading is one way. Collateral cannot solve this problem. Another common obstacle to interbank money market trading is structural excess liquidity. This is the result of the accommodative monetary policies that have been implemented by central banks since the global financial crisis and more recently in response to the shock of COVID pandemic lockdowns. As a result, banks are flush with cash. The larger banks, at least, don't really need an interbank money market, even one based on repo. As for the smaller banks, if they're not also flush with cash, it's probably because they lack collateral to give to the central bank. This lack of collateral means that a repo market wouldn't be of much use to them either. And lack of collateral at small banks is likely to be the result of underlying credit issues. These need addressing directly through supervisory action, not trying to paper over the cracks with collateral. But even without structural excess liquidity or lack of competition in banking, repo is inherently challenged 
by the burden of collateral management. To trade repo, you need to value, mobilize and manage collateral. There are significant operational and legal costs. In comparison, unsecured interbank deposits and FX swaps are cheap and easy to use for liquidity management. In successful repo markets, banks have been incentivized to use collateral by regulatory recognition of the reduction of risk. But in too many emerging markets, regulation does little or nothing to compensate for collateral management costs. Uh, let me note in passing that some of this regulatory problem may arise from outdated accounting treatment, as many regulatory metrics are based on balance sheets. However, the most fundamental obstacle to a repo market, one that would exist even if we solve the problems of excess liquidity, lack of competition and ineffective regulation, is that banks have so many alternative financing options that they don't really need the repo market. Banks are therefore unlikely to provide the motive force required to drive a new repo market forward. They will only enter the repo market once someone else has generated core liquidity. We need to look elsewhere to other types of institution which do not have the same range of financing options as domestic commercial banks. Solving this issue is in many ways the key to building a new repo market. Question two, is there a liquid government bond market? If not, what will be used as collateral in repo? After all, collateral won't be of much use in a default if it can't be sold or if the price collapses when it's being liquidated. Such collateral will also be difficult to value when we try to trade. And if it's used at all, because of its illiquidity, it'll probably be subject to prohibitive haircuts. The creation of a liquid government bond market means reform of primary and secondary bond market structures, introducing competitive auctions, publishing regular issuance calendars, building benchmarks, appointing primary dealers, offering an official securities lending facility, setting out short selling rules and so on. Government bond market reform is therefore no small matter. And it will also be ultimately under the control of the finance ministry. Whereas, of course, repo market development is usually managed by the central bank. Does the Ministry of Finance recognize the need for a repo market? And how well did the Ministry of Finance and the central bank cooperate? There's also a regulatory angle to government bond liquidity. In a number of emerging markets, the supply of government bonds available to use as collateral has been shrunk by banks holding these bonds to meet liquidity ratios, but not reusing them as collateral. The fact that these holdings aren't reused by banks has a number of causes. We've already talked about banks not needing cash, but other factors are at play that will become important once the interbank money market starts working. For example, there may be an assumption among bank accountants that hold to maturity securities cannot be repoed. It may also be that the regulator doesn't allow the reuse of liquidity holdings as collateral or actively discourages their reuse, for example, by requiring deep haircuts. The fact that these holdings aren't reused by banks has a number of causes. We've already talked about banks not needing cash, but other factors are at play 
that will become important once the interbank money market starts working. For example, there may be an assumption among bank accountants that hold to maturity securities cannot be repoed. It may also be that the regulator doesn't allow the reuse of liquidity holdings as collateral or actively discourages their reuse, for example, by requiring deep haircuts. And it's often suggested that banks don't reuse collateral because they prefer buy and hold investment strategies. This is a charge also leveled against non-bank investors like pension funds. In fact, these obstacles are relatively easy to overcome. For example, a buy and hold strategy is not an investment preference. It's the only investment strategy possible with illiquid securities. Once the market gets moving, investors will be ready to exploit the new opportunities on offer. I should note at this point that many repo market development plans include ambitions not just for government bonds, but also for corporate bonds. However, this is a distraction until there is some liquidity in government bonds. Question three, if the local securities law and the local bankruptcy law don't allow collateral to be given by title transfer and or don't allow close out netting, we need to ask, is it realistic to expect that a private contract to provide these mechanisms, that is the GMRA, will be allowed by the courts to override statutory provisions, particularly in civil code jurisdictions where statute plays a pivotal role, even if the contract is backed by the regulator? In other words, is it really possible to have a contractual solution to a statutory problem? And where the governing law of the GMRA has been changed to local law, we also need to ask, how well will the agreement work under local law? Basic legal concepts, terminology and constructs differ widely between jurisdictions. There may also be a language issue. And how likely is it that a judiciary with little or no commercial or financial market experience will cope with a contract that is the highly evolved product of a long mercantile legal tradition? Finally, are securities and bankruptcy laws the only legislative obstacles to a repo market? For example, would the local recovery and resolution rules take priority over everyone else's claims to collateral in the insolvency of a major bank, even if the collateral had been given by title transfer? Question four, let's look at the proposals often made for the pre-settlement infrastructure of a new repo market. Proposals for electronic trading systems in the repo market tend to suffer from the fact that electronic trading is so poorly understood. This is apparent from the failure to ask what type of electronic trading is needed. There are many very different types. Central limit order books, click and trade, click to trade, requests for quote, auctions and structured lists. In fact, if a long hard look is taken at what dealers in an emerging repo market really need, we usually discover that it is not an electronic trading system, but rather an electronic price information and reporting system. Proposals for electronic trading systems may also raise questions about the governance of markets, but these are never addressed. Such questions arise where the local stock exchange has a historic monopoly on bond trading. 
because repo is mainly against bond collateral, the exchange will probably expect to host any system supporting repo trading. However, a stock exchange is demonstrably not a good place for any type of fixed income trading. This is apparent in the fact that little or no trading of bonds ever actually takes place on stock exchanges. What the exchanges call trading is in fact just post-trade regulatory reporting of OTC transactions. Fixed income is too complex and not sufficiently liquid for exchange trading. The problem for repo market development is that the stock exchange may be a powerful vested interest. What about tri-party repo? Where this is proposed, there seems to be an assumption that it will automatically improve collateral valuation and margining, particularly for corporate bonds. But ask yourself, from where can a tri-party agent get prices that others can't? Proposals for tri-party repo are often based on hope rather than evidence. If the history and location of tri-party repo is examined, it will become clear that it is not an early stage technology. Finally, calls for CCPs never appear to consider whether the core functionality of a CCP, which is the mutualization or sharing of default risk among members, is a realistic possibility in the local market. We need to ask whether local banks would be willing to underwrite all the other local banks, or whether only the best banks would be allowed into the CCP. And if only the best banks can join, whether there are enough to make a CCP viable. There are more practical solutions for early stage markets, for example, ad hoc or umbrella guarantees of the sort pioneered by Frontclear. My final question is, has anyone talked to the taxman? Repo involves a sale and then a repurchase of securities, as well as variation margins, interest payments and manufactured payments, all of which are potentially taxable events. But if certain of these flows are taxed, repo simply won't work. Taxes have been responsible for obstructing many new repo markets. Problem is that tax authorities are universally very reluctant to offer exemptions, even where other government agencies are doing the asking. The case needs to be made objectively and backed by evidence. This will take time and expertise, but it's always surprised me that many repo market plans fail to prioritize an early start to negotiations with the tax authorities, and they never invite the taxman to repo training courses. The obvious question now is, can all these obstacles possibly be overcome? The answer is yes. But having just listed many of the fatal problems that I found in typical repo market plans, how can I be so confident? Well, I'm not saying it'll be easy, but it is possible. And I can say this because successful repo markets have been built from scratch in Europe, Latin America and Asia. Some of these were emerging markets when they started their journey and the development of a repo market played an important role in their transition from emerging to developed market. Of course, in most of these markets, development was slow and often a process of trial and error. In other words, these markets often made the same mistakes as emerging markets are making now. But emerging markets don't have to repeat these mistakes 
or take the same amount of time. Case studies from developed repo markets provide clear evidence about what is needed to build new markets and in what order. And indeed, when I'm asked to advise on repo market development, I draw extensively from this pool of experience, as well as the history of what's gone wrong in the plans drawn up for emerging markets. So what would a realistic plan look like? And in particular, in answer to question one, what type of institution is key to driving the development of a repo market? Well, I'm afraid that will have to be the topic of another podcast. In the meantime, feel free to make contact. Thank you for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful. Thank you for listening. For more ICMA podcasts and further information on capital markets, please visit our website, icmagroup.org.